Hey everybody, it's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals in the whole wide world, and we review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to get accurate information from trustworthy sources. That felt like our best intro yet. I think we nailed that one. Glad someone feels that way. (laughs) (laughs) After I edit it, it's going to sound so crisp. All right. (laughs) That's all that counts. So we're back. We haven't been recording for a few weeks because we were on vacation. And now we're here to tell you all about it. That's right. Because it was an incredibly on-brand vacation. It was a business trip, really, if your business is nature. I mean, we won't be saying that to the IRS, but... <laughs> You're not trying to write off our, our family vacation as a business expense? No. I think we could swing it that no. way for sure. It was a research mission. It was field work, really, mm. <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> so we did. We went on a really big trip. Me and Christian took our two kids, aged one and a half and eight, loaded them up, hauled them across the country over to Monterey Bay, California, mm-hmm. and had a, spent a whole week there with our friend and just spent a whole week taking in the nature and the beauty of the West Coast, which some call the best coast. <laughs> it went great. It was awesome. It was very good. It went so good. And we saw some really amazing, incredible animals, some of which we have talked about on this podcast before. That's true. Um, which was really exciting because they were animals that I don't know if I would have gotten so excited about them <laughs> had I not already had the experience of talking about them with you on the show. Yep. Yep. For me, the notable one was the acorn woodpecker. That was the one I was thinking of too. Yeah. Cause I was in the wild as well. Bonus points. It was. Yeah. We saw a lot of them. I, I think we should do like a quick recap of what we did on our trip. Okay. Just to kind of like set up some of the things in this episode. Sure. So day one, we go to the Redwoods Forest. Uh, We went to Henry Cowell. Is it a national forest? State forest? Something like that. Um, But it was a beautiful redwood forest. Saw the trees. Gorgeous. Beautiful. Nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Never seen trees so big. Some absolute units they got there. (laughs) Day two, Monterey Bay Aquarium. The whole reason for the trip. The keystone of the visit. It was kind of, yeah, it was the flagship. uh, That was really what we were going for. And it was worth it. It was great. Everything about it was, it met and exceeded expectations. Just Mm -hmm. an incredible trip. I'll talk a little bit more about some of the things we saw there in my segment, because that's what inspired my segment this week. Day three, we went tide pooling in the morning in Asilomar State Beach, which was so cool. We don't have tide pools where we live, so we we got to climb on the rocks, and the water was so cold, but we saw so many cool critters. We saw anemones, hermit crab. You saw some hermit crabs with beef. Oh, yeah. They were fighting. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure for shells. Yeah, they were like dragging each other around. It looked like one was trying to pull the other out of its mm. shell. There's interesting like grasses and kelp and such. Oh, yeah. Lots of kelp everywhere. Yeah. It was really cool. One sea star. Yeah, we did see a big chunky sea star. It was one of those ones that kind of looks bulbous almost. Yeah. It was really cool. Chitons, uh, limpets, stuff like that. So some cool stuff we never get to see here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, went down to Point Lobos Natural Reserve, which was just gorgeous. There's cliffs. We saw so many seabirds, sea lions, seals, otters. The next day we went whale watching and saw humpback whales in the bay, mm-hmm. which was transformative. Oh, yeah. 
That was incredible. We've talked about humpback whales on this podcast. We have. Too. Yep. So that was a cool experience to get to see them out because they did some of the behaviors you talked about in your episode. They That's did true. The, the lunch feeding and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if we specified this, but we also learned that the bubble netting is a specific population in Alaska. Right. Yeah. That's not something that like all of the humpback whales right. do. So the ones we saw were not doing that. But they were doing some other really cool stuff. Yep. They were slapping their chins. They were doing a full breach. So you get this massive humpback whale just flying out of the water. It was gorgeous. After that, we went to the Pinnacles National Park, mm-hmm. uh, which was gorgeous, very different from where he, we were for the rest of the week. So we traveled about a, an hour and a half in to the desert yep. and quickly realized that we were in over our heads because we're used to Florida hiking, which is very different from California hiking. The incline was steep. It was very hot. I had a toddler on my back. <laughs> the children it, were heavy the children were heavy (laughs) yes so that one we did not quite make it but i'm glad we saw it yes i'm glad we went even the drive out there was nice too beautiful drive yeah Yeah, it was it was gorgeous um we did not do what we set out to do that day but it was fine it's the adventure not the destination (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) and then last day you know we kind of spent doing kids stuff to get the kids like out of their system, I guess. We mm-hmm. went to like a playground and I took my older son to the beach so that he could swim in the Pacific Ocean, which was a big thing he wanted to do. Uh, we were only there for probably about 15 minutes because it was extremely cold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really, really cold. But, you know, it was one of those things that like he wanted to say we did it. Basically. Sure. So that was really fun. And then, you know, the last last day we spent pretty much the whole day coming home. But it was great. Highly recommend, you know, if you've been kind of mulling it over for a while, like, oh, yeah, I really would like to go to Monterey or I really would like to make that. Do it, man. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Gave us a lot of perspective um, for some of the animals that we have talked about and are about to talk about today. True. Starting with you, Christian. Yep. You're up first this week. So our first animal is a fairly common animal on the west coast of the United States. Way more common than I thought. But we don't have any on the east coast. Nope. Not a single one. <laughs> so this was the equivalent of someone who had never seen a squirrel before just kind of showing up in our you know backyard. Like, whoa! <laughs> squirrels! I, you know, I do sometimes... Not dunk on, but I do sometimes laugh about people who come to Florida that don't live here and are just like extremely enamored by our lizards that are everywhere. Mm -hmm. So like you can kind of tell when you're at Disney World, especially you can kind of tell who's from out of town by who's like crouched down on the ground taking pictures of lizards. Oh, true, true. Um, It's kind of like that. I definitely I that was me freaking out about these animals that nobody else cared about because they see them every day. Yes. Not to hold suspense any longer, that animal <laughs> is the California sea lion. I love it. I've, we fell in love with him. <laughs> Scientific name, Zilophus californianus. Uh, we saw these primarily around, it was Point Lobos and then also our whale watching, because we saw them out in the bay as well. Well, also around like the wharf, like in yeah. the city of Monterey, they were everywhere. True. So I'm getting my information from the Monterey Bay Aquarium's website found at MontereyBayAquarium.org as well as Animal Diversity Web at AnimalDiversity.org and finally the Smithsonian's National Zoo at NationalZoo.si.edu. Excellent. Yes. Fantastic sources. So we like to talk about how 
big an animal is. Mm, for sure. So this is an animal that has some pretty extreme sexual dimorphism. So the males are much larger than the females. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're chunky boys. Yeah. On average, males are 2.2 meters long or 7.2 feet and weigh 275 kilograms, which is 606 pounds. And that's on average. Whereas females are 1.8 meters long on average or 5.9 feet and weigh 91 kilograms or 200 pounds. It's a little more reasonable. Right. So when they're side by side, you can definitely see the difference just in size alone. For sure. We mentioned where they're found. So we saw them, of course, on the west coast of the United States, but they can be found on much of the west coast of all of North America. And some areas of that are only during breeding season. Oh, really? So we actually caught them kind of towards the end of their breeding season. Oh, would they probably not have been as abundant? I don't know, but I think they're there year-round. I would imagine yeah. so. It's in the name. California <laughs> ceiling. They belong to the taxonomic family Otaridae. Otariidae. There's two eyes in there. And those are known as the eared seals. Okay. Yeah. I can't think of where their ears are, though. They have little ear flaps. I mean, they by, by the That's loosest opposed, definition of ear. As opposed to none. As opposed to none, you're the right. the other seals don't that's have. true <laughs> so first of all let's talk about when we talk about seals and sea lions you know we're talking about pinnipeds yes this is our first time talking about a pinniped it is and that is a clade that includes eared seals like these earless or true seals <laughs> true seals <laughs> people love using that you know descriptor and then finally walruses Oh, very good. Yes. Rest in peace, Freya. Gone but never forgotten. <laughs> yeah. So those are the pinnipeds. And, you know, we mentioned the, these. this is, was very new and exciting for us because we just don't have pinnipeds in our home range. No, <laughs> none. There's yeah. none here. Yeah. Uh, whereas there are others, you know, all across the globe. So there are other folks in that family are, you know, other sea lions and fur seals. So there are other kinds of sea lions. Talk a little bit about the difference between a sea lion and a seal. Oh, yeah. Right? For sure. I don't So know. especially true seals. So we, t- we talked about the ears. The so true seals will have very hard to see holes on the sides of their head. So they, oh. they have an inner ear, but they don't have like an outer ear, I guess, structure. Okay. Right? They're an innie, not sure. an outie. <laughs> but they do have ears. But also their back fins are not as pronounced. So really, they, they have... I don't know, more of a, I would think of like a mermaid shape for their, oh. for their back, for their back half. Are they like fluked? They're just not as big and they're more fused together, I would oh, say. Oh, okay. They're kind of more streamlined, I right. guess. Right. And then their, their front flippers are also not as big. Now, I don't normally go too deep into evolution or taxonomy, but I thought this was a little interesting. So current analysis supports the monophyletic origin or single ancestral line of pinnipeds. So this means all the pinnipeds came from one ancestral line. Mm-hmm. Whereas that's that's opposed to a prior popular theory of a diphyletic uh, ancestral line or two ancestral okay. lines. So that that theory was said that, you know, walruses and eared seals were coming from one line and then true seals came from another. But like I mentioned, current analysis supports one. But what's strange about that is that they all share similar traits that their common ancestors don't have. Really? Yes. <laughs> so like they all started in the same place and all diverged but in the same way. Yes, and this implies what's called parallel evolution. Okay, yeah. as opposed to convergent evolution. I think convergent is where like animals that are not related evolve similar traits oh, over time, okay. but parallel is where over time they both evolve but in the same way. Yes, they evolved similar traits because they're very good for their environment. Mhm. 
Um, and that information is from an article titled A Total Evidence Phylogenic Analysis of Pinniped Phylogeny and the Possibility of Parallel Evolution Within a Monophyletic Framework. That was a mouthful. That was. That was a lot. And that was by Robertson, Rybzinski, Kono, and Madden. And that was in the Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution Journal in 2020. Also, I don't know how far you went into like pinniped, like where pinnipeds fall on the mammal tree. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, I think, would probably reasonably look at a pinniped and think, oh, it's shaped kind of like perhaps um, a whale or a dolphin being an aquatic mammal Mm -hmm. um, and think maybe that they are related. They're not. Whales and dolphins, as we talked about uh, on last week's episode about dolphins, are cetaceans, and they evolved from ungulates, right. which are hoofed animals that are mostly herbivores. Mm-hmm. But the pinnipeds came from carnivores, like uh, bears um, are a close relative right. of Right. So I think them. today's most common terrestrial animal ancestor are mustelids and bears. Mm. Yeah, because they got otters are mustelid too, mm-hmm. and they're also in that sort of aquatic realm yep it's very interesting that they evolved in such similar ways despite being very far apart (laughs) unlike the family tree of mammals i think it's also a timeline thing yeah um because what the cetaceans and the pinnipeds did is one thing you know they were terrestrial animals at one point Mm -hmm. that um started to spend more and more time in the ocean probably drawn by uh, you know more food more resources sure and then evolved traits to help them be better in the ocean and then you know in the cetaceans case be only able to be in the ocean right (laughs) and then you've got manatees Mm -hmm. which share a body plan with all of them and are nowhere near any of them on the mammal tree they're over in afrotheria with like elephants and Mm -hmm. hyraxes and stuff which is just very interesting how that like body plan just keeps popping up all over the mammal lineage just on its own good stuff So enough about taxonomy. Our first category is effectiveness, and this describes physical attributes to help them do the things they need to do. I'm giving a very good 9 out of 10. That is good. Yeah. So first, they're very good swimmers. They have strong four fins um, that are very large and very flexible in how they can move them. So it gives them a lot of... Did you say four fins as in like they're... Front and back. Like the number four, not like four limbs? Oh, yes, correct. As in... Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so they have two back fins, not just one? Right. That, that's the difference, right? Mm-hmm. They they have four feet that are each turned into a fin. Or, I see. Right. So they have those fins and they're very uh, maneuverable. So they themselves are also very agile underwater. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They can make these really tight turns, too. Mm-hmm. They're like little ballerinas. They're gorgeous. They're also torpedo shaped. They are. (laughs) (laughs) So they're very good swimmers. They have eyes that are good for swimming deep. Oh, really? Yes. So they're usually kind of at the top of the water column, but Mm -hmm. they can go, you know, pretty deep to catch prey. And the things they're going after are fish, cephalopods, those kinds of things. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, now, at the surface, their pupils can contract to, like, the size of pinholes. Oh, wow. But, you know, when they're down the deep, they're, like, huge and dilated and letting in as much light as possible, right? Oh, okay. And something interesting about those pupils is they're they're not circles like ours. Really? They're teardrop-shaped. Teardrop-shaped? Yes. This is one I haven't heard before. Yeah. I've heard of quite a few pupil shapes and never teardrop. This is not something you would probably notice in person. Be- oh. well, one, because you're probably not going to be that close. But two, <laughs> if... This is probably at the surface and it's probably extremely, you know, tiny Mm -hmm. at that point. Right. If this is similar to the cephalopods Mm W-shaped, I 
a pupil, what I remember about that is that when the pupil is narrower at the top than it is at the bottom, that means that it is letting in more light when it's looking below it. Oh, because it's darker down there and it needs to be more open to let light in. But coming from above you, the light's going to be coming from above you. So you mm. don't need to let in as much light from above as you do from below. Yeah. So when you have the, when the pupil is letting in less light from above and more from below, it's letting you see more specifically in the light gradient that you're experiencing deep in the water. That's cool. That was how the cuttlefish, yeah, cuttlefish yeah. eyes were. It makes sense here. They have very good hearing. They can hear well both above and below water. That makes sense. Yeah. Because we watched a video <laughs> last night of them barking at each other underwater. <laughs> uh, those ears close while they're underwater, too. Mm, that's yeah. smart. I mean, I don't like it when water gets in my ear. Sure. So I kind of wish I could do that. They have a good sense of smell. Their nostrils are closed at rest. So mm. they, they have to exert effort to open their nostrils, which is good for swimming. They have whiskers, not unlike a dog. Big bushy whiskers, um, yes. too. not as bush, not like walrus bushy, but like that's close. Yeah, and those whiskers help them detect movement underwater, mm. so they're great for finding prey in total darkness. Oh, good, yeah. interesting. Also, with like like fish are able to detect movement around them by feeling the change in the flow of water around their right. body. So I'd imagine if you have a lot of uh, mechanical like sensory input around you, you could feel things like even if you're not looking at it, you yeah, could feel yeah. something moving around by feeling the way that the water is moving around yep, it. Exactly. So what kind of gives them an edge over true seals is they can also walk in a way on land. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they take those hind flippers and then just kind of rotate them underneath <laughs> themselves. <laughs> it's so goofy. <laughs> it's, it's definitely so not elegant at all. But, no. <laughs> but it's it's better than the seal tube shuffle, you know. It's very, it's clown shoes. It is. It is clown shoes. Yeah. So it's pretty funny. But it they can do hilarious. it. I'll give them that. <laughs> <laughs> they have pretty good cold resistance, which is good for where they're found. For sure. So they have that layer of blubber that's pretty common with marine mammals. Oh, yeah. And they also have fur that traps a layer of water near the skin. And then their body heat heats up that layer of water. I didn't really think about them having fur because they look so streamlined. They do, right? That you would probably guess that that's just skin, maybe. Yeah, and especially the way they're depicted in like cartoons and such, you might think they have a surface similar to a dolphin. I right? was thinking like a dolphin, yeah. like a slippery sort of yeah firm skin. But it's fur. It's not the same as like sea otter fur, where it's like two different layers, right? Mm -hmm. But they do have fur. It just appears very sleek. I think of like penguin feathers. Yeah. Like having that sort of like tight seal around it. <laughs> seal. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? It like locks yeah. water out. Yeah. What helps them with keeping body heat is they have a small surface area to volume ratio. You mean their tubby. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because a short um, geometry lesson, <laughs> the 3D shape that has the smallest <laughs> surface area to volume ratio is a sphere. So the more spherical <laughs> you get, yes. you really want to just approach orb. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure is where the idea of sphere came from. <gasps> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's an orb. Yes. 
the final thing I want to talk about is, again, another kind of topic I don't always talk about, but it's something to do with their breeding I found interesting. Okay. So let's talk about the early development life cycle of mammals. Yes. Right? So start out as an egg within the mother. That egg is fertilized mm-hmm. and turns into a zygote. That zygote turns into a blastocyst, but then that implants into the wall of the uterus, and then that develops, you know, from embryo to fetus to fully grown animal. Gotcha. Right. So what's interesting about that, so in humans, for example, you know, that that's all a very, you know, constant development. But in California sea lions, the blastocyst stays dormant before it implants into the uterine wall. After it's been fertilized? Yes. And they just hold on to it? Yes. I'm going to keep that in my pocket. I'm just going <laughs> to hang tight. And that's just because so that their overall gestation cycle is is 11 months long. Okay. And then 28 days after birth, the female is ready to get pregnant again. Okay. So that it makes it so they're migrating for these breeding seasons and, you know, that cycle lines up with it on, a, on an annual basis. Okay. So is that 11 months including the time when the blastocyst is dormant? Yes, it does. So, of course, if there wasn't that dormancy period, that means the gestation cycle would be shorter than 11 months. Oh, but they just hit pause right. for a little while. They're like, <laughs> I'm going to be pregnant later. They want to be able to get pregnant you know, when they're where they're supposed to be for the breeding season. Oh, sure. Interesting. So they're kind of like postponing it. Right. Yeah. But I guess they're already like pregnant. <laughs> they're just not like developing. Right. It just kind of hits pause at that stage. Interesting. <laughs> huh. Whereas with humans, you know, the, there's no like pause there really. It's just, right. Once it starts, it yeah, doesn't stop. Yeah. yeah. It just goes and goes. Yep. Interesting. Is this something that's voluntary or is it just like part that's like, it's just built into the process? I think it's just built in. Yeah. Oh, okay. Weird. Um, Pregnancy's weird. Yeah. The reason I didn't give a full 10 on 10 on effectiveness is because they don't have much in the way of dealing with predators that go after them. Other than just being big. And fast. Big and fast. Those are two good things to be. But if those fail, they don't really... That's true. Also in the ocean, a lot of other stuff that's also big and fast. Yeah. So things that are coming after them include larger sharks and orcas. Oh, yeah. Those are two things you do not want coming after you. Yes. Uh, I mean, I'm sure they'd go down fighting, but it's... It's rough. Yeah. It's a rough rough time. So, yeah. That is effectiveness. On to ingenuity, which describes kind of smart things that they're doing. Uh, Brain power, if you Oh, yeah. I'm going to full 10 out of 10 on this one. So these are very smart animals. We talked about their hunting methods a little bit, Mm -hmm. uh, where they're diving deep, finding things using these different senses. But they're also known as a trainable species. Trainable. Yes. So this is why you'll often see them in performance type settings, You know, be that at aquariums or zoos or even circuses. On TikTok? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So they have that intelligence capability where they can be trained to do things. This is what you think of when you think of balancing a big beach ball on their nose. Or honking some bike horns. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I've for sure seen sea lions do performances. Yeah. They're also social and form herds, uh, particularly during the breeding season. They have an interesting method for heat management. Oh. So as to not overheat. Okay. Because I guess this is a problem they have otherwise. And one thing they'll do is while they're resting on land is they'll leave a flipper in the water. Oh. And then the their flipper kind of acts as a heat sink. Oh, <laughs> that's smart. Yeah. It's kind of like at night when you keep one foot outside of your blanket. All night, every <laughs> night. <laughs> Just the one little leggy. A sure way to wake me up is to come along with a foot-sized blanket and cover <laughs> that foot. <laughs> Just 
a little tiny blanket. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, uniform temperature. (laughs) They also put sand on their backs, I I assume, to cover themselves from the the sun rays. And they also fan their flippers in the water, kind of going along with that whole heat sink idea. This is reminding me of Primarina, the Pokemon, Mm. the mermaid Pokemon. So now we did come across a sea lion that was half in, half out of the water, very close to like the boardwalk. Yeah, for sure. I wonder if that's what it was doing. Probably. Just just cooling off. Resting and also cooling off. Yeah. Yeah. Because it didn't seem injured, at least. No, (laughs) for sure not. That's one of the things I was worried about, because it was very close to where people were walking. But I think sea lions are just not bothered by people at all. So like, yeah, I think they were just cool with it. I suppose. That's fine. They also have lots of communication. Oh, they absolutely <laughs> do. <laughs> yes. So they have a barking that um, I think it was at Point Lobos that we first started hearing it. From like a mile away. <laughs> so that was likely uh, you know, males defending territory. Mm, I think that's what the docent said. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what they'll do during their breeding season. Um, you know, males will have a kind of group of females that they're breeding with and then they'll defend a territory with mm-hmm. those females away from other males for a period of time until they get hungry and leave and then they cycle in a new male i guess <laughs> and uh and what does that sound what does that call sound like um i can call it in <laughs> what do you mean call it in i'm gonna call you i thought you <laughs> i thought you meant you were gonna call a sea lion on the phone <laughs> yes sea lion so we have a special guest today it is a sea lion we hold a microphone up to you can can I hear it? No. Can I hear your best sea lion bark? No, I want to. You don't want to? No. Can I do can, one for you? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I can't do it without laughing with it because it's funny. Good job, babe. Uh, they'll also use those vocalizations to call to their pups. That's mm. what their babies are called, by the way, pups. Mm, of course they are. <laughs> That's so cute. They also communicate with head movements and their whisker movements. Mm. Uh, they use smell as well. Now, they'll use that combo of distinct voices and smells to identify individuals. So this is particularly useful between mother and pup. It seemed like when the mother goes off hunting at a particular age, the, the pup is with other pups in a group. And then when the mom comes back, she has to find, like, oh, which one's mine? Oh, it's <laughs> picking up your kid at daycare. Basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're sitting in the car rider line. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's ingenuity. I have seen videos of experiments where scientists have been like testing sea lion intelligence Mm -hmm. and trying to get them to respond to visual cues. It'll be something where they hold up shapes to them and they'll say like, oh, touch your nose to this shape to be given a fish. Right. Um, And then they would show them different shapes and the sea lion would have to press its nose against the right shape to get a fish. And they could get even wild sea lions to learn like which shape to touch. Makes sense. Um, And they were like really, really good at it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's some, there's some really sophisticated stuff, I think with sea lions. Mm -hmm. And our last category is aesthetics. How interesting or cute or cool they look. Yeah. I'm giving a full 10 out of 10 on this one as well. They're so cute. Yeah. (laughs) They might not be related to dogs, but they definitely have that puppy dog face thing that just caters to the human psyche. Yes. (laughs) It is hardwired into the brain. It's like, find this cute. Yes. Can I say, though, I think seals are cuter than sea lions because I I feel like they have a little bit more of like the round face where sea lions are like longer. I think... And I'll talk about this more, but I think female sea lions are cuter because Mm. of some of the traits that males have. (laughs) Yeah, I think I know what you mean. 
Um, and so I can just get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first, males will develop a domed forehead. It's so, <laughs> it's very prominent. Yeah. <laughs> Big old noggin. Not as quite, not quite as, you know, out there as a beluga, but. Sure. It's, it's in that realm. Got mega mind running around over here. <laughs> now, um, something I, I didn't know, other sea lions, like not this species, have something like a mane on them. Oh. And that's where they get the name sea lion from. Lion. Okay, sea lion. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think I've seen sea lions that have this trait, but... Right. It's not this species, though. That makes sense. So, yeah, I think just based on aesthetics, you know, the females are are not as big. Mm-hmm. They're more kind of elegant. They don't have the bulbous forehead. <laughs> <laughs> not constantly barking, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The male sea lions are dragging down the score, I think, a little bit. They're putting in a lot of work. Uh, so, yeah, wet dogs, very sleek. <laughs> they are big, wet dogs. <laughs> Last couple things, their conservation status as a species is of least concern, and that's of an IUCN study done in 2014. Some of their bigger threats, of course, are habitat-related. So, you know, think pollution, loss of food sources, especially Mm. since a lot of the things they eat are also targeted by our fisheries, that kind of thing. The competition with commercial fishing. And that's one of the things that happens a lot with them, unfortunately, is conflicts with human fisheries and also getting tangled in human debris in the oceans. Because they are mammals, so they do have to breathe. So if they do get trapped in like a fishing net or something underwater, they will die. It is not an ideal situation. Yes. And that is the California sea lion. I was really delighted by seeing them in California. We also, you know, I mentioned that we went whale watching and we saw humpback whales. And and a big part of that was following around the sea lions. Mm-hmm. Because the sea lions, what do they call a group of sea lions? A pod? What do they call it? A pod of sea uh, lions? That sounds right, yeah. Or maybe a float or something. Float may have been. Raft. I think it was a raft okay. of sea lions. Oh, that's otters. I don't know if it's the same word for yeah, sea lions. Know. Terms of venery are all made up anyway, so it doesn't matter. But we would have to chase around these sea lions, and you would wait. And then once you saw a bunch of sea lions all surface at the same time, that was the spot that they knew to look because the humpback whale would then surface right afterwards in the same spot. So it was like the sea lions were chasing like the larger fish mm-hmm. and then the humpback whales would come behind and pick up, you know, plankton that were floating around around the fish. It, it might have been the other way around where they were following the, the humpback whales. Oh, you think the sea lions were following the humpbacks? Yeah. That makes sense too. Yeah. But they were hunting together, which was mm-hmm. really cool to watch. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're like they're helping each other at all or they just happen to be same place, same time hunting, right. the, hunting the same thing. But, right. Yeah. But I'm sure also like... They're signaling to each other, like, hey, this is a good, not intentionally, right? right. But like the humpback whale might be like, oh, there's sea lions over there. There's a good place for me to hunt. So yeah. they might not be like intentionally cooperating, but sure. you know, they're going to signal to each other that it's a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Those poor sea lions were definitely getting upstaged. Like <laughs> nobody was excited to see those sea lions at right. that point. It was all about the whales. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm guilty of that. I'm sorry. Whales are cool. <laughs> it's really awesome to see. <laughs> well, I mean, when it takes, you know, going offshore by like five miles to see them. Right. Yeah. yeah it was a big moment. So we were just, it was, it was so great to see. Yeah. We saw sea lions all over the place. Uh, saw them swimming in the kelp. Uh, the kelp. There's a big kelp forest in the Monterey Bay and we mm. got to see that. We also saw otters. Like we did. Bundled up in the kelp and holding hands. So it's just really magical. What a great place. Mm -hmm. Great sea lions. Thank you, Christian. Yeah. Let's take a minute to hear promos from our friends on the Max Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. 
Hi everyone, I'm Ella McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes. Every Thursday, we will be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Dr. Sydney McElroy. That, that is true. It's important in this context because we host a medical history podcast called Sawbones. Oh, I thought we were going to. We should have worked on that. Sawbones. Sawbones isn't afraid to ask the hard-hitting questions. Like, are vaccines as safe and reliable as they want us to believe? Yes. Do I have to get a flu shot? Yes. Uh, okay. Is science a miracle? No. We have a lot of great history for you and a lot of laughs. And sometimes the history is so bad that there's no laughs. But you'll learn something, you'll feel something. And it's always sawbones. That's right. Every week on MaximumFun.org. All right, Ellen, what do you bring from California? <laughs> I am bringing a friend that I made at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, mm-hmm. my new best pal, <laughs> the giant isopod. Yes. A uh, scientific name, Bathonomus giganteus. Love it. Yes. I'm getting my information from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, the Aquarium of the Pacific, and NOAA. All right. As in the, the government ocean people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, as the name implies, the giant isopod is a big old boy. They're up to 16 inches long, mm-hmm. or 40 centimeters. So, uh, you know, that's a little over a foot long. What's significant about that is that the other isopods that are not giant isopods are usually only a few centimeters long. Right. They're typically less than like half an inch. They are by far the largest group of isopods. And much, much larger than terrestrial isopods. Oh, much larger. Yeah. <laughs> So you'll find these at the bottom of the ocean, pretty much worldwide. There's not like one particular part of the world they live in. You can find them here, too, if you go out off the coast and head mm. straight down for a while. Oh, perfect. Yeah, you'll eventually find them. So they do like to hang out at depth from 170 to 2100 meters, which is 550 to 7000 feet. And they're in the taxonomic order of isopoda, mm. which are the isopods. And isopods are crustaceans. I think a lot of people think that they are maybe bugs or perhaps related to millipedes. I, for a long time, thought they were related to millipedes just because of the vibes, I guess. Sure. But they're not. They are more closely related to crustaceans. They are crustaceans, but they're more closely related to things like um, crabs and lobsters and stuff like that than they are to right. Bugs. There are over 10,000 known species of isopods. That's too many. It's a lot of isopods, (laughs) Um, including the beloved roly-poly. Oh, okay. Armadillidium vulgare, uh, which people all over the world known by many names because they're found all over the world. So, like, everybody has their own little folksy name for Mm -hmm. them. We call them roly-polies. They're also called, like, a woodlouse or a... I think in New Zealand they call them slaters. They got all sorts of silly little names it's for pill them. Bugs, pill bug, potato yeah, bug. potato bug, all sorts of stuff. But there are also other types of terrestrial isopods. There's also freshwater isopods, marine isopods. There's just so many. 
An- another notable isopod that I wanted to highlight is called the rubber ducky isopod. Uh, so huh. called because its face looks exactly like a little yellow rubber duck. It's it's yellow and it has a little like orange bill. Like that's interesting. Like a rubber. Its face looks exactly like a rubber ducky. I'll have to look that up later. It's so cute and so strange. I'm like, why would you look like that? But they're really cute. <laughs> um, so I mentioned that I'm talking about one species, but they're not the only giant isopod. Uh, giant isopods belong to the genus called Bathynomus, hmm. and there are about 20 species. They're all pretty similar, though, um, and by far the most common one is Bathynomus giganteus. Hmm. So usually when people say giant isopod, they're usually talking about this one, um, but like even just like a, I want to say within the last month or so, a new species in Bathynomus was identified. Okay. Yeah, so they're not like the only species, but they're all kind of similar. So just to kind of get right into it for the giant isopod, uh, for effectiveness, I give them a nine out of 10. Okay. Uh, So the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that they are so incredibly big and that that is so unusual. It's not like there's like a gradient of sizes in the isopod group. Mm. They're like all really, really tiny, except for these that are like a million times bigger than the rest of them, inexplicably. And this is an example of a concept, a phenomenon called deep sea gigantism. Oh. You ever heard of this? I think so, yeah. So if you You've ever noticed that a bunch of stuff deep in the sea is ridiculously huge, like way huger than other stuff that's normally in their group. So some other examples of deep sea gigantism are the uh, giant squid, whereas Mm -hmm. most other cephalopods do not get anywhere near their size. Uh, The Japanese spider crab, which is a million times bigger than the (laughs) other crab. Which we did see at the aquarium. We did. Yes. Yes. Christian took a very good picture with a nice big chunky spider crab yeah so there's a bunch of stuff that lives deep in the ocean that gets really really big and there's a few reasons for this one of the reasons is that food is extremely scarce Hmm. the ocean is vast so opportunities to eat are going to be few and far between so a large body can help you take advantage of more opportunities to eat Mm. because first of all you can close more distance with a large body like when your body is huge it takes less effort for you to travel long distances Mm -hmm. but also like think about if you had to catch your dinner as it falls from the sky right because most of the food opportunities in the deep ocean are things that have fallen down from above in the water column like carcasses chunks of animals that have fallen off of it stuff like that it's falling down and you have to catch it so imagine that you're trying to catch your dinner as it's falling from the sky would you rather catch it with a butterfly net or a soccer goal (laughs) like you're gonna catch way more with a soccer goal you're gonna be able to get more food sure so when your body is larger you're just able to take those opportunities for food more frequently um another reason for deep sea gigantism is that temperatures are really low like it is cold deep in the water because you know the light can't reach you that far down so you're not being warmed by the light from the sun and cold makes things slow like when things are colder they go slower right so imagine when you put ketchup in the fridge it doesn't mm. flow out of the bottle as well because it's cold. Yeah. But if you leave it out on the counter and let it warm up, 
then it'll come out of the bottle real easy. Sure. So when your body is cold, it metabolizes things more slowly. And a slow metabolism lets your cells take their time and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. So that's why you get things like the Greenland shark, yeah. which are big, but they live for a hundred million bajillion years, <laughs> right? Like they'll live forever because just the scale of time is like magnified right. because they're just living in slow motion basically. So, you know, that's kind of why they in particular are so big, just because it helps them get more food and their metabolism works that way deep in the ocean. That being said, they are very energy efficient. So food uh, sources are, like I said, few and far between. So giant isopods are extremely good at surviving for long periods of time without food because of their slow metabolism. Notably, a giant isopod named number one at the Toba Aquarium in Japan went over five years without eating. Huh. Yeah, in uh, in 2009, they fed this isopod an entire horse mackerel. It ate the whole thing and never ate again. Like they tried giving it food, it just didn't eat? I saw something that said that it would pretend to eat. Like the article <laughs> I was reading about this said it would rub its face into the food and like pretend to eat, but it wasn't actually eating. And it never ate again until it died of starvation in 2014. Oh. <laughs> so it did die eventually, but it took five years. I, what I think happened was that it just, that influx of food just like short circuited it. Like it just turned off its hunger response, uh -huh. right? That was just like, that's it. That's all the food we need. We're done. Don't need to eat anymore. So it did die, but that was the longest recorded period of time that any captive animal has ever gone without eating. Wow. So they were trying to feed it, but it refused food until it died for after five years. Same aquarium, Toba Aquarium, their giant isopods made headlines again in 2018 when poop was found in their enclosure for the first time in two years. Oh. So their isopods went two years without pooping. Huh. Yeah. Now, and the really weird part about this is that they analyzed the fecal matter that they found of these giant isopods, and they found in it scales from fish that they did not feed the isopods. <laughs> like, they were like, I don't know where these scales came from, which implies that they had been digesting that fish since before they came to the aquarium, which at that point was seven years prior. Right. So they had been <laughs> digesting this fish for seven years, <laughs> which is just like, that gives you a, an idea of the sense of scale of time that these animals, they're operating at a completely different flow of time than we are. Sounds like a Ishiguro story type thing. Yeah. It is a very like high level sort of abstract sci-fi concept yeah. that like they're just living on a different flow of time than we are. I do want to say that isopods, these isopods have more sophisticated vision than roly polies do because, you know, they do live so far underwater. So they kind of have to. They have compound eyes that have over 4,000 facets. Whoa. Um, so we've talked about compound eyes before. We have lots of little tiny eyes all kind of stuck together. Compound eyes give you the advantage of having a very wide field of view and very high sensitivity. So it's really good at detecting movement around you. Mm -hmm. But what it's not good for is resolution. Right. So you're basically seeing lots and lots and lots of images, but none of them particularly well. So it's really bad for detail. They can't see detail. They can't see things up close very well, but they can tell if things are moving around them. Hmm. So they do have a tapetum lucidum, What's that? which is that sort of like reflective membrane on the back of the eye oh. that bounces light off. 
Uh, I think we talked about this with the slow loris, but um, hmm. it's basically if you shine a flashlight in a cat's eye and the light bounces back at you, it's because of this reflective membrane in the back that bounces the light out, lets the eyes process more of the imagery coming in from the light. So that's right. really cool. Very important for something that lives in the darkness of the ocean floor. And then my last thing for their effectiveness is that much like their roly-poly cousins, they can roll up into a ball to protect their underbelly. So are these things just crawling or can they swim? Both. Okay. They usually crawl, but if they need to, they can swim. They have these little like flappy bits underneath their tail that kind of like undulate and help them swim up in the water column if they need to. I bet it looks like the Leviathan from the Atlantis movie. Yeah, now that I think of it, it does look like that. Huh. That's probably where they got the idea for that design. Huh. So yeah, they can do either. They can like freely swim if they want to. But honestly, they spend the vast majority of their time doing nothing because they're conserving energy, right? So they really only move around if they absolutely need to, like if they like smell food nearby. So next up, I give the giant isopod a 4 out of 10 for ingenuity. Uh-oh. I mean, there's just not... <laughs> They're very, you know, I think this is similar to what I gave the roly-poly probably. I don't know. I didn't go back and check. But I'm going to give them a four because the thing is they have such a slim profit margin on their energy intake, you know. It is so energetically expensive for them to do anything compared to how much food they're able to take in um, that they're really not doing anything. So if they're not actively scavenging, like if they haven't detected food nearby or nothing is like actively trying to eat them, they're probably burrowed under the sand, hiding and doing nothing. And Mm. that's like 90% of their life (laughs) is just doing nothing. But that being said, they're scavengers. Um, They crawl along the bottom of the ocean floor and they pick away at dead things that have fallen to the bottom. But sometimes they do a little more than just scavenging. Oh boy. Sometimes they will attack. If they're hungry and they detect something near them that they think they could feasibly kill and eat there is a video online you can look it up it's on youtube of an isopod attacking and latching onto the face of a live dogfish shark wow yeah and then okay i will say it's not a huge shark like the shark is a little bigger than the isopod but it's not like a i don't think it's an adult shark but um the isopod latches on face hugger style and eats the shark's face off and kills it. Just drags him to the bottom, and that's game over for that shark. I guess that makes sense. Aren't they related to the isopods that eat the tongues and become the tongue? There are parasitic isopods. Okay. Yeah, there are parasitic isopods that you'll see, like, get into a fish's mouth and then eat their tongue and then latch onto the inside of the mouth and, like, become their tongue. Yeah. Yeah, it's really gross and weird. But, uh, (laughs) oh, yeah, there are definitely parasitic isopods. Okay. It's not this one, though. This one's not. This one is just rude. So it makes sense, though, that it has the capability to do these atrocities. Yes, it can commit many crimes. Okay. You know, just to really lean into the, like, deep sea, you know, sea monster aesthetic. Um, So I do give them points for bravery for that. But that is negated by the fact that sometimes isopods do attack fishing trawls. You know, when they're, like, dragging a big net, like, along the bottom to catch fish, isopods will sometimes try to attack that, and they'll, like, latch onto it, and that's not good for anybody. It hurts them. It, you know, damages the net. Um, It's not not ideal. It's not a good situation. (laughs) Something that's funny is that when isopods do find a good haul of food, such as an entire horse mackerel being given to them by an aquarium, they gorge themselves until they literally can't move. So they eat until... 
they're paralyzed by how much they've eaten. <laughs> and like we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> we've all experienced <laughs> that. Um, and I was gonna deduct points for that, like ingenuity wise, but I think it's actually fine. Because if you think about what their priorities are in life, if they have just like made a big haul and found a bunch of food to eat, that is their entire to-do list complete for like the next four years. True. Like they do not have anything else to do. So it doesn't, (laughs) I don't think it matters that they eat until they can't move because why are you going to need to move? You're fine. You're set. So I cannot talk about giant isopods without talking about one of my favorite things in the entire world, a situation in which the isopod may encounter such a feast that it would gorge Uh. itself on until it cannot move. It is the most joyful occasion on the entire ocean floor, and it is a whale fall. Mm -hmm. So a whale fall occurs when a whale dies, and then its body sinks to the bottom of the ocean and lands on the sand like the Titanic. The whale's carcass becomes just a festival for creatures of the deep that gather from miles around. They all just crawl out of their crevices and gather on this at this uh, big, beautiful skeletal table that is this rotting whale. Um, So this is where you're going to see all sorts of scavengers, decomposers, predators Mm -hmm. that gather in the area to eat the scavengers, right? Right, (laughs) You're going to see a lot of that. So they all kind of gather around for this big, happy, abyssal horror uh, family reunion. This is where you're going to see things like hagfish. Giant isopods are like an icon of whale falls. You're pretty much guranteed to see giant isopods. Right. Uh, six-gill sharks are mm-hmm. a common one that you'll see. They're really cool, really beautiful sharks. So whale falls are really interesting because of the way that they enrich the ecosystem in phases over years. And I'm getting this information from NOAA's uh, National Ocean Service. One whale carcass takes four phases at the bottom of the ocean. The first phase is the phase where these larger scavengers, like hagfish, isopods, sharks, stuff like that, they come and they pick away at the soft tissue. So this is when they're eating the fat, the muscle, the organs, the soft bits. So once they're done with that, there's a second phase where opportunistic things like worms and crustaceans and stuff come in and colonize the bones. Ah. And that's where they start to eat out like the marrow. Once they've kind of excavated the marrow from the bones, then bacteria and worms come in and start to break down the lipids in the actual bones themselves. Um, And this is really cool because with the chemical processes of them breaking down these lipids produces sulfides. And sulfides are really great for these like sulfur-loving animals, so things like mussels and clams and things like that that do a great job of processing sulfur. So then you get this like wave of animals that are being nourished, not just by the nutrients from the whale's body, but by the like the products of processing the whale's yeah, body. Yeah, yeah. And then there's even like a fourth phase where when you're left with just kind of this like hard husk of whale bones, that then becomes like the structure of a reef where like filter feeders and sessile things can like latch on and it becomes this like hard structure that they can grab onto and filter off of. So then you get like this reef that starts to grow from the bones of the whale. Um, so it's a really gorgeous process. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of grody, but uh, like, gosh, it's the, just the coolest thing. 
I saw Noah's figure said that one whale carcass that falls to the bottom can create and sustain a community for up to a century. Wow. Yeah. You know, like decades and decades and decades, like over a hundred years of like an entire thriving ecosystem from one whale. That's awesome. Yeah. I've, I've read that whales are huge carbon sinks too. So mm-hmm. like they're, they're taking a bunch of that, you know, from what is usually at the surface and then putting it all down there to sustain life. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, dumping nutrients down into the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just it's just a gorgeous thing that happens, I think. It's like it's such a beautiful like circle of life moment where like this huge enormous like the largest creature that's ever existed in the history of our planet mm-hmm. and it plummets to the bottom and then just becomes a like a micro planet for like all manner of deep sea weirdos. Right. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of whale falls. Um, isopods are an important part of the whale fall community. So couldn't talk about them without talking about whale falls. Was this the inspiration behind how they did the biggest baby in Ethersea? Like how it was created from the bones of that god? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Maybe. I'd have to go back and listen. Yeah. Hmm. That's an interesting, <laughs> uh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. Maybe we'll uh, have to send an email to the Adventure Zone. See, <laughs> see what they say. And finally, for the uh, giant isopod, I give them a 9 out of 10 for aesthetics. Oh, that's generous. I think they're really cute. Yeah? I really do. And I don't know if this is influenced by the encounter I had with one. Yeah. Um, But I think because of their similarity to the roly-poly, I think that's doing a lot of favors for them here. Because I have such a positive association with roly-poly, so I think maybe they're getting some like favor there. But yeah, I mean, like I mentioned, they have these little flappy bits under their tails that like undulate and wave in the water when they're swimming. It's really pretty. I definitely recommend looking at some videos of isopods swimming through the water column. It is really beautiful. I will say their face is not as cute as terrestrial isopods. They don't have the same sort of like cute little adorable face with these tiny round eyes and stuff. They have more of a, I've seen them described as Darth Vader of the sea. I think I've seen that too, yeah. Yeah, some people say they look like Darth Vader, which I definitely do see. Like, it wasn't an observation that I made, but once somebody pointed it out, I was like, yeah, I definitely see it. (laughs) If It's if Darth Vader was like pink. If they had like a pastel pink... I've seen a cosplay like that. Kawaii Darth Vader. <laughs> yep. Uh, Hello Kitty cross Darth Vader is great. <laughs> <laughs> That's what these are. These are Hello Kitty Darth Vader <laughs> of the ocean. I Yeah. So I, I mentioned that I had an encounter with one that I think is swaying my aesthetic score at the Monterey Bay Aquarium currently in their Into the Deep exhibit, which was a big factor in why we wanted to go to the aquarium in the first place, Mm -hmm. Uh, which we've been talking about going to this aquarium for years. We've been wanting to go for a really long time. We finally pulled the trigger because of this Into the Deep exhibit. And uh, part of it was they have an isopod touch tank Mm. and you can reach in and touch them. You can pet a giant isopod. It's the coolest thing. It's an incredible experience. Really amazing. What did it feel like? It felt very hard. I, I guess I was expecting maybe more of a feeling like um, almost like a plastic or a rubbery sort of feeling, but it felt more like a, a rocky sort of. Oh, okay. I was going to ask about like what kind of friction did it feel like? 
it was bumpy. Yeah. It was kind of bumpy. Um, but then I realized afterwards that it makes more sense that it had that sort of texture because it did feel like the texture of like a crab's shell, mm. like the hard outer exterior of a crab's, not a hermit crab's shell, but like a type of crab that has, Actual you know, crab just like shell. an ex- Yeah. <laughs> um, it felt kind of like that. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense that it would feel like that. Cool. So, um, also the, you know, the ones there were just burrowed into the sand and being completely still, which is cool because it wasn't like startling to touch or anything. You know, you could pet them and they weren't bothered by it. Good. Yeah. So very cool experience. Highly recommend. Somebody taking a video and posting a video of them petting an isopod on Twitter was like, when I saw that video, that was the thing I showed you. I was like, we're going. And we did. (laughs) We did. We followed through and we went. We did it. So it was a life changing Twitter post. This is usually where we talk about conservation status. Giant isopods are least concern. As with a lot of deep sea creatures, they can't really keep close track of how many there are. So it's hard to get population data for them. Mm-hmm. But something of note conservation-wise is that some giant isopods have been found with stomach contents that include microplastics or plastics in general. Yeah. Um so ocean pollution is a you know something that is directly affecting them because it falls to the bottom of the ocean and then isopods being, you know, bottom feeding scavengers find it and eat it. Right. And then it gets into their system. It's not good for them. You know, that's just kind of something that is affecting creatures that are so incredibly far away from us. That's like, it's difficult to think about something being so far removed from human life and they're still being harmed. And naturally, climate change is affecting things in the ocean. I think just being good stewards of the ocean is the best way to care for our isopod friends. And that's it. That's the giant isopod. Thanks, babe. Thank you. And that is all that we had for today. Thank you so much for listening, friends. It means a lot to have you along with us. If you liked what you heard today, I would love it if you could leave us a five-star review. I read them. They make me happy. It's really nice. Or if you, you know, if you have already done that or you just don't feel like doing that and you want to show the love in some other way, uh, recommend us to a friend. Tell somebody that you really like our podcast and give them an episode to start with and share share the love. Yeah. And also, if you want to come hang out with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord. Links will be in the episode description if you want to come hang out with us or chat with us on social media. We're easy to get a hold of. Um, if you have an animal you want to hear us talk about on the show, my email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. Thank you to Maximum Fun for having us on your network. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the network and its other shows, head over to MaximumFun.org. While you're there, sign up for a membership to help support us and keep us going and thriving. Thank you, Louis Zong, for our theme music, which we adore. It's very good. It's spectacular. And that's all for today. Thanks, y'all. And thank you, Christian. Thank you. It was so nice to talk to you. (laughs) And it was nice to travel with you, too. I didn't say this earlier, but you're a spectacular travel buddy. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I'm really glad we did that. Till next week. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.